This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Within the Buddhist tradition, there's, there's two, uh, well, there's lots of divisions. If you're around Buddhism for long, you will become aware that Buddhists like to make big lists. And then sub-lists of the lists, and sub-lists of the lists of the lists. Uh, but there's a very simple list, uh, which is that um, uh, Buddhism, pr- Buddhist practice quite often is divided into what we call samatha and vipassana. Samatha is calming, and vipassana is insight. Um, a lot of people say a lot of things about insight, um, and a lot of it I think is a load of rubbish, personally. But um, insight's actually quite simple, really. It's just seeing the way things are. It's just seeing actually what's going on. Uh, you know, if we recall the Buddha, uh, the Buddha had exactly the same sensory uh, uh, experience and equipment as what we've got. The Buddha had uh, sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, and mind. Intention, attention, volition. Uh, so that it's not that complicated. Uh, you know, when, 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 when the Buddha talks about insight, he talks about um, seeing things as they are, immediate and visible all round. So it's not, it's not somewhere else. It's not, it's not on another planet or offshore somewhere. It's actually seeing the nature of our experience clearly. So... What I want to uh, just touch upon this evening is the link, just just link up a little bit between ethics and so-called insight. Because quite often, you know, when we come along to Buddhism, you know, we, we hear that the, the Buddhist path is basically divided into a triad of uh, sila, samadhi, prajna, eth- ethics, meditation, wisdom. And so uh, immediately we want to go for the, for the wisdom, and, um, and especially uh, esoteric practices, Particularly secret esoteric uh, practices, uh, and, uh, and 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 the higher teachings. We immediately want to go to the higher teachings. So ethics is right at the bottom of the pile, really, and that's easy to sort of try and skip over it. So I just want to sort of point to the to why ethics is actually important. Um, and by way of doing this, I want to just go back to the to the Buddha. Uh, and as you're no doubt well aware, uh, the Historical Buddha, the Buddha of history, lived in India about 2,500 years ago uh, in what is today central north India. And it appears that Siddhartha Gautama, that was his name, uh, the Buddha-to-be, he lived a comfortable, privileged lifestyle for the time. Uh, Married young, had a son with his wife Yasodhara, and he was on track to succeed his father as a clan chief of elected tribal elders. So the Buddha was a shakyan. There were different big clans. There was the Mag- uh, Magadis, the Kosalis, the Shakyans. Um, and they seemed to have, uh, uh, they seemed to run themselves with a council of elected tribal elders and then there was a, an elected head. And it, it seems that um, Siddhartha's father was the elected head of the Shakyan clan. So he would have effectively had an, an aristocratic lifestyle probably couldn't read or write, uh, would have learnt to ride a horse, shoot a spear, learnt all the genealogy of the tribe and all the rest of it. So 
uh, Gautama lived this quite privileged lifestyle. But the story uh, also tells us that Gautama was deeply disturbed or perturbed uh, by the evidence of disease, death and old age. And he was in the grip of uh, what we might call an existential dilemma. An existential dilemma is a particular philosophical term that I'll I'll draw out. Um, So there was no going back for young Gautama. Um, Once he'd seen the sights of disease, death and old age, it it made a very deep impression upon him and disturbed his, his sense of equilibrium within the context of his life of luxury. Uh, you know, for for the young Gotama, you know, after uh, what is the point of living if it all ends in debilitation and decay, which it will. Um, I think they did some research in Australia some years ago, and they found that actually one in ten people die peacefully in bed; the rest die as a result of prolonged debilitation and decay. Uh, and it's, you know, there's there's no way around it really. Um, so that made an impression upon them. You know, what is the sense of life? You know, here we are. I mean, you know, do you ever think about, well, you know, why am I here? <laughs> What's the point of it? You, know, you can get up and walk around on your hind legs and go shopping till your heart's content, but what is the point of it? Uh, what is the sense of life? And then life is threaded up with unsatisfactoriness. You know, like if you observe yourself, you, we're always coming up with plans how we're going to rearrange things, and this time, you know, we we'll sort of make it better or happier. Um, and the reason we have to do that is because there's this constant underlying thread of unsatisfactoriness. Uh, the, uh, I think uh, uh, technology, for me anyway, is a very good example of that. It never quite works properly. <laughs> <laughs> you get your new computer and the new software and all the rest of it. And, um, yeah. and things, are, things are also impermanent, temporary and unpredictable. And particularly so at the time of the Buddha. I mean, these days, uh, given the lifestyle we live here in Stockholm or back in London or wherever, you know, it's actually a highly artificial lifestyle. In fact, you can just flick a switch and have light and flick a switch and have warmth and, you know, you can eat bananas in the middle of winter and all the rest of it. Um, It's it's a highly unusual lifestyle. And also, you know, at the time of the Buddha, they didn't have the benefit of modern medicine. Uh, And, you know, whether you're into alternative medicine or modern modern medicine, these days, you know, barring misfortune, you've got a reasonably good chance of living a, a long life. You know, in the Buddha's day, you had no such guarantee. You know, if you got ill, that could be that could be it. Um, you know, an illness could come along at any time. So, you know, why are we here at all in the first instance? What is the point of living? And is it possible to escape the seemingly endless round of becoming? Uh, you know, these were the questions, the concerns. Uh, the pressing contradictions that burned into the psyche of the young Siddhartha Gautama. So an existential dilemma is uh, it's, a, it's, it's a viewing or a seeing or a sense of contradiction uh, that is existential. It's become part of your soul, as it were. You can't put it down. Uh, it's, it's burnt itself into your psyche. It's the way you look out on the world. It's there when you look out. Um, yeah. So the Buddha was, was taken up with, uh, with these questions. Uh, so this is what we call in English an existential dilemma. Existential because the questions themselves had become a living paradox 
and a, a dilemma because the paradox was beyond recognition or solution in the conditions of life that Gotama found himself. So he wasn't, out, he wasn't able to solve the problem at the level where he was living. Uh, so he, 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 he was uh, living in, a, in an unsustainable tension and, and state of conflict. So this existential dilemma that, um, that uh, Gotama was experiencing, um, it was not the disinterested curiosity of the professional scholar or the academic philosopher. Uh, this problem at the core of the young Buddha's being, it was an energetic pressure, or you could say even a psychic volcano, that desperately needed some sort of resolution. And this is what he was living with. And, uh, you know, this happens to us. Sometimes it happens temporarily, sometimes it can happen permanently. But when one becomes aware of the, the indisputable evidence of impermanence, uh, of the insubstantiality of all that one holds dear and of value, then all that's left, really, is for one to act. Uh, and the solution becomes terrifyingly simple. Simple because it is obvious, uh, and terrifying because one is stepping into the unknown. And uh, stepping into the unknown constitutes fear of loss of self, for which we are deeply afraid. Yeah, the, the root fear is fear of loss of self. And the solution for the Buddha? Well, at the time of the Buddha in India, uh, they had quite an enlightened society in many ways. And they had this system going where they just used to support people who were on uh, a spiritual quest. So, so long as you were spiritually questing, the population tacitly agreed to feed you and look after you. And uh, if you could perform miracles, it could even be quite profitable. So there was incentive for the, the various wanderers as well. Uh, but it wasn't that they were all wandering or wandering around. You know, like we have depictions of the Buddha, you know, these days, and he's got a nice bald, shiny head, and he's got lovely robes, and he's wandering around, you know, and he's all peaceful and radiating. Um, <laughs> you know, some of the disciples, some of the this very sects of wanderers, were completely depraved. Yeah, you know, the, the, the dog ascetics who thought if they behaved like dogs, that would solve the problem of. Uh, you know, the existential human situation. So they were going around behaving like dogs, you know, barking and howling and running around on all fours and everything. Um, and then there was the bark garment wearers, people, you know, who were committed to wearing garments made from bark. There were the matted hair ascetics, the fire worshippers, and they all had different views as well. You know, some believed that, you know, actions didn't have consequences. Some believed that actions did have consequences. Some believed in no afterlife, some believed that there was an afterlife, some believed that there was neither an afterlife nor not an afterlife, and so on and so forth. And a lot of the villages would have like a, a ground outside the village, and all these ascetics would gather. And it was like a, a fishmonger's market day, by all accounts, you know, arguing and bickering and debating and carrying on that went on. Um, as the Buddhist community developed, the Buddhists were known, because they'd always be a couple of miles down the road apart, and they were known for, known for being happy and tranquil. But that was before the Buddha had developed the Sangha. Here he was just a young man, and he looked at this tradition. You know, this, this was what was going on in India at the time. So he, he decided to go and become one, a wanderer. 
he didn't have in mind to become a, any wanderer in particular. He just thought, well, he would use that vehicle, as it were, to um, to try and sort out this existential dilemma. And so it was that in the depth of the night, Siddhartha Gautama cut off his hair, and he put on a patchwork robe of cast-offs, and plunged into the jungle to seek his destiny. Now, the Buddhist tradition has it that the Buddha asked his faithful servant Chanda to saddle his horse and make ready. And then he fled to the, the boundary of the Shakyan kingdom and there went forth, cut his hair, put on the robe, you know, and then Chanda rode back. And this story is uh, in the context of a symbolic and ordered myth of legend. And I don't really buy it myself, actually. It may be true, um, but personally, I suspect that he just fled. He just fled in the night. He just up sticks and fled, uh, propelled by this existential crisis. And he probably just like split, you know, before anybody could find him or talk him out of it or, and the rest of it. Uh, and so he would have been motivated by the irresistible suffering of his view. Um, and this was a view into the abyss of human transiency and suffering. So he, he, just, he just up sticks and fled into the jungle. And uh, you know, when we think about the jungle, you know, here in Stockholm, you know, sitting in front of the fire eating our chocolates, it seems really romantic. You know, it's like, here he was, just thinking that he's in the jungle and the cicadas are chirping away and the stars, you know, it's a nice warm Indian night. And, um, yeah, the trees, the, the whole earth was covered in trees, you know, the mangoes. Yeah. There, were no, there were no radio waves, there was no light from cities, you know. The, it, uh, a, a friend of mine who had been a forest dweller in Sri Lanka some years ago told me about a layman, Mr. Wetty Man, who went forth like that. And Mr. Wetty Man, he's a, he's a Sri Lankan. And he went forth into the jungle and uh, they found his bones some months later. He'd been eaten by a lion. And uh, this this was quite often the case. Uh, you get eaten, or the snakes would get you, or the mosquitoes. Or it was a, it was a it was a pretty dangerous undertaking going and plunging into the jungle. Plus, you know, in those days, you, you know, you didn't have motorways or anything like that. And, you know, the, the police cars of <laughs> you had you had a city, and then you just have a great you know swathe of jungle, you know, two thousand square miles, and another city. And between the cities were bandits and unsavoury characters. Um, so, you know, you had to deal with all that. Anyway, the Buddha just plunged into the jungle. Uh, and one thing is for sure, you know, this decisive act determined the course of the Buddha's spiritual quest. Uh, and subsequently, the course of his followers, and uh, flowing into billions of people down through the course of human history. So this was a decisive act. Uh, in, in, in the field of human spiritual endeavour. Um, so according to legend, Siddhartha spent between six and ten years vigorously pursuing a solution to his crisis. And he didn't do it just on his own. At the time, uh, the Indians, well, they weren't called Indians then, they were Magadis, Kosalis, Shatkins, it was just a sort of like polyglot of little kingdoms. Uh, but they, they had, the um, Aryas had very highly developed meditation uh, techniques and systems. 
And uh, the Buddha first learnt meditation at the feet of the great Indian masters of the time, uh, Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta. And there he learnt meditation up to the level of the formless dhyanas. So he learnt the form dhyanas and the formless dhyanas. And he could uh, enter the dhyanas at will. And the, uh, both teachers offered him you know, an even share of the business, as it were. But he hadn't actually solved his existential dilemma. So from early on, the Buddha had tremendous integrity. And he wasn't going to settle for any less than a solution to the problem. And it had to be a final and complete solution. So he, he moved on. And he moved on to years of asceticism, mortification of the flesh. Now this comes through, it comes through medieval Christianity in various places, that by mortifying the flesh, you purify the spirit. Um, so, you know, you, you, by wearing a hair shirt, for example, in a hot um, Swedish summer, you, you know, you will actually purify yourself. And there were all sorts of extreme practices that people undertook. Um, and this didn't work either. But dur during this time, this time of asceticism, the fame of his austerities rang as a great bell through the land. This is the traditional expression. And he, he was famous for it. And, and people, even in India today, greatly admire ascetics. But eventually the Buddha abandoned his, uh, his companion ascetics, or rather they abandoned him. and Because uh, they thought he was beginning to go soft, because he was having second thoughts about asceticism. And uh, he ended up quite alone under the Bodhi tree on the banks of the river Naranjala. Uh, and this is where the Buddha off, uh, uttered his famous oath. So even though he'd gone soft, he uh, uttered the, the famous oath, flesh may wither, blood may dry up, but until enlightenment, here I sit. So that was the sort of intensity he had built to. I mean, if I took that vow, I'd probably keep it for about an hour and a half, you know. <laughs> I'd think, oh, well, I'll go and have a cup of tea now. <laughs> Or something like that. Um, yeah, you know what we're like. But, but the, the Buddha meant it. He would have he would have sat there till he died or got enlightenment. That was it. It was uh, you know risk all to gain all. And uh, on the full moon night of May, as the morning star rose in the sky, the Buddha gained enlightenment, uh, and everything went over. Nothing remained. Vimutti, freedom. Uh, you know the Buddha had realised. Uh, the complete uh, cessation of, of his existential dilemma. Uh, his problem of insight was resolved. And uh, so, so at this point he became the Buddha. Siddhartha Gautama became the Buddha, the awakened one. And he spent seven days and seven nights deep in meditation, absorbing his realisation. And eventually he roused himself uh, from the pile of kusa grass he's sitting on and proceeding on foot across India he began teaching Dharma, and he taught for 45 years. Uh, and we have quite accurate records. Uh, there's a particular section of Buddhist canonical literature called the Pali Canon, known as the Tipitaka, which means three baskets. And one of the baskets is Suttapitaka, and that tells the historical stories of the Buddha. So in those suttas, you're a fly on the wall. And all, the Buddha's teaching style consisted of mainly of sitting under a tree and talking to people. And unlike a lot of Buddhists today, the Buddha never insisted that anybody address him in any particular way. And people didn't. Some people would go shout at him. You know, some people would try and undermine him. Some people would try and trick him. 
uh, Angeli Mala, the bandit, was was trying to kill him. Um, and he would just enter into communication with whoever came along. So these suttas, these um, stories of the Buddha, are records of the Buddha in dialogue with a variety of people in ancient India. And it's fascinating because it's a very, very good description of what life was like in ancient India, uh, apart from the fact that it's about the Buddha and the early Sangha. So we know quite a lot about, uh, about what the Buddha said and what he taught. And he had 45 years to systemize his teaching as well. Now, there are some excellent books on the Buddha's quest and subsequent enlightenment. So uh, quite a good one is A Guide to the Buddhist Path. Uh, it's a Tree Ratna publication. Um, there's Who is the Buddha? That's by Sangharakshita. And uh, there's another good one. It's called Gotama Buddha, The Life and Teachings of the Awakened One. And it's by an order member, Vishvapani Blomfield. That's not his ordained name. Vishvapani is his ordained name. Blomfield is his, his Christian name. But it's not in the content of this talk to give you a detailed description of the Buddha's life and teaching. Um, so as I want to talk about ethics. Um, so there's one incident during the Buddha's quest in relation to what I want to talk about that I would draw your attention to. Um, and it's of relevance to the question of ethics. So at a certain stage in his quest, the Buddha was observing his mind. And uh, sometimes, you know, it's easy to think that the Buddha, you know, just sort of powered into the jungle, then powered through the form and formless dhyanas, then powered into insight and got enlightened. But a lot of it was just trial and error. It, was, it would appear the Buddha was prodigiously intelligent. Uh, and that he had a very, very acute observation of his experience. They seemed to be the main things. And a lot of it was just trial and error. He'd try this, it wouldn't work. So he'd backtrack, he'd try that, it would work. Um, you know, he spent a lot of time in the form and formless dhyanas, didn't resolve the problem, so there had to be another route. And he, he, was, just, he was just trying to work his way through. And at a certain stage in his quest, the Buddha was observing his mind. He spent a lot of time observing his mind. And he noticed that uh, whatever he placed his attention on, that whatever he occupied his mind with, that content of mind flourished, became and grew. So as human beings, I mean, regardless of uh, gender, philosophical persuasion, political persuasion, whatever, if you observe, you will see that you have this faculty of attention. So... If I place my attention on that picture up there, that comes to the foreground, every, everything else fades to the background. So, it's, 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 so we, can place our, we can choose to place our attention where we want. So the Buddha was looking at this and he looked at his mind and he began to notice that if he, if he placed his attention on um, certain mental events, on certain content of the mind, and held it there, then that content would grow, it would flourish, it would come to be, it would become bigger, it would become prominent. So he thought, well, this is interesting. Um, and really it's the basis of the first two verses of the Dhammapada. And, and the Dhammapada, Sangharaksha's translation, the first two verses sum up the whole of Buddhism. This is all you really need to know to get enlightened, actually, um, but you do need to concentrate on it. <laughs> um, Experiences are preceded by mind, led by mind, produced by mind. 
If one speaks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows even as the cartwheel follows the hoof of the ox drawing the cart. Experiences are preceded by mind, led by mind, produced by mind. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness follows like a shadow that never departs. So I'll just repeat those two verses. Experiences are preceded by mind, led by mind, produced by mind. If one speaks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows even as the cartwheel follows the hoof of the ox drawing the cart. Experiences are preceded by mind, led by mind, produced by mind. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness follows like a shadow that never departs. So, within this process, the Buddha further observed, noticing that if he placed his attention on certain mental events, they would cause to flourish and grow. He further observed, looking into his mind, that he could distinguish between skillful thoughts or mental content and unskillful thoughts or mental content. So observing this, he then thought to himself, what if I were to place all the skillful mental events in one pile and the unskillful men mental events into another pile, which he did? Then contemplating his two piles of skillful and unskillful thoughts, he reflected to himself, what if I were to ignore the unskillful mental events, allow them to wither, and contemplate, reflect upon the wholesome skillful thoughts, causing them to become, to flourish, to grow. So proceeding thus, the Buddha discovered that by volitionally and intentionally distinguishing between skillful and unskillful mental events, and by placing attention upon the skillful, he caused happiness, joy, tranquility, and concentration to grow, to develop, to become. And this is how the Buddha worked. It's very simple. It's not rocket science, but you do have to have a very steady beam of concentration, where, which is where samatha comes in. We need, we, need, we need a mind that is steady, that is bright, that is focused, and a mind that knows what it's looking for. This is key. We need to know what we're looking for. So the Buddha just observed, if I place my attention on that, it comes to the foreground. If I hold my attention on it, it flourishes and causes to grow. So then he thought, well, there's those thoughts that are skillful and those that are unskillful. So if I ignore the unskillful and concentrate on the skillful, then the skillful develops. So this is the basis of right effort in the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, and it's also the indispensable foundation of ethical intention and behaviour in the Buddhist system of practice. So by way of explanation and, and uh, by way of a bit of a diversion for the moment, um, just, just as a sort of lead into the spiritual community and, uh, and, and, and the basis for the difference between skillful and unskillful, uh, it's perhaps worth pointing to the fact that within society and the group in general, family is the indispensable basis of human society. 
Uh, now, family, generally speaking, is a grouping of humans based upon biological identity. Now, there are variations uh, to this, such as same-sex marriage or blended families, adopted children and the like. But for the most part, for better or worse, uh, we look like our parents, our children look like us, um, especially as we grow older. And uh, be warned, the older we get, the more we begin to behave like our parents. So that's a good reason for practicing the Buddha's path. <laughs> but, um, it's quite sobering, actually. In the absence of an effective spiritual life, you will begin to behave like your parents. <laughs> so, so be warned. You heard it here in the Stockholm Buddha Centre. Now, for the spiritual community, on the other hand, the indispensable basis of the spiritual community is the ethically aware individual. So this is to say that the spiritual community consists of those individuals who see that actions have consequences and who intentionally commit themselves to behaving in accordance with skillful actions of body, speech and mind, at least to the best of their ability. Uh, and this is the basis of, of, of the spiritual community. So that the ability to distinguish between skillful and unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome, and to intentionally cultivate those actions conducive to skillful behaviour is the foundation of the ethical life, and by extension the foundation of the Buddhist spiritual community. Now, I'll just say here, I have to say this, now this does not mean that family is by definition unskillful. Yeah, in fact, it's highly desirable that members of a family group are ethically decent people. And, and those families where this is the case will flourish. Um, however, families being what they are, are not necessarily made up of or composed of ethically skillful individuals with wholesome intention. Uh, you, know, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family, as the saying goes. But... Ethical behaviour is not even guaranteed with a spiritual community, you know, given the nature of our unenlightened state, um, you know, to mention nothing of uh, biological groupings. However, you know, where you do get people interacting on the basis of free will in, in an ethical and skillful way, there you have the spiritual community. You know, so the context of ethics, you know, at least from the Buddha's perspective, is the basis, the indispensable basis of the spiritual community. Which all sounds fine, um, but how do we define the difference between skillful and unskillful? You know, I mean, who's to say? And uh, you know, particularly the, today, there's a lot of moral or ethical relativism around. You know, I mean, you know, take for example the the Aztecs in, in uh, medieval um, South America. You know, the Aztecs were rather fond of human sacrifice. In fact, they they thoroughly annoyed all the tribes around them because they would taking so many people for their human sacrifices that um, it become a bit of a problem. And, and, and the, 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 the tribes that weren't Aztecs uh, colluded with the uh, Spanish conquistadors in the end to get rid of the Aztecs. Um, but, you know, there, there, are, there are philosophical and ethical uh, positions these days that would, would argue the fact that, well, you know, within the context of that society, that was ethical. That's what they did in this and that. So you, know, you have this ethical relativism. So if the Buddha's sitting there saying, well, you know, this is skillful and this is unskillful, what's he basing it on? So 
Yeah, the question of ethics raises all sorts of interesting philosophical, social and personal questions because the Buddha is actually intimating an absolute ethic that this leads to skillful events and that leads to unskillful events. Uh, and you can say a lot about this uh, and there have been thousands of volumes written on the question of ethical relativism. So I'm not going to try and argue the case here. And I don't think the Buddha actually... Uh, um, functions like that anyway. I mean, in Tri Ratna, we go back to the Buddha. So, without labouring the point, the Buddha makes it clear that ethical conduct within the Buddhist context is based upon metta, upon loving-kindness, and clear comprehension or mindfulness. And the Buddha's position is really, if you don't believe it, try it and see if it works. Um, all the precepts in Buddhism are rooted in and arise out of metta. Uh, and uh, all the Buddhist precepts, even the monastic precepts, are, are a working through of the principle of metta. So the Buddha you know, quite clearly based his uh, analysis of the difference between skillful and unskillful on that which conduces to metta, loving-kindness, and that which does not conduce to metta, loving-kindness. So there's no absolute statement that can prove the integrity of Buddhist ethical practice. Um, all one can do is try and see. Yeah, there are some things uh, you, c you could look at. You know, for example, uh, one that fascinates me personally is uh, why does a lie detector work? You put a lie detector on someone, and if they're telling, well, what, with, in English, what we call porkies, um, like, like lies, uh, yeah, the lie detector starts giving it all this, ch -ch -ch -ch, because uh, there's something going on in you internally. You know, your heartbeat changes, uh, your adrenaline changes, your pulse changes. Um, it is possible to, to beat a lie detector, I'm told, if you're properly trained. Probably in the CIA, somewhere in the depths of the Pentagon, there's a room where you can be trained. But for, you know, for, for the average person... Uh, it would appear that uh, there is some innate human ethical sense. Yeah, that uh, it's, ag it's against something fundamental in your nature to lie. And uh, the whole question of, of uh, an innate human ethical sense is, is, is uh, quite an interesting uh, subject in itself. Innate, it's, it's in you. It's as if you were born with it. Yeah. Uh, but also, given the nature of human reflexive consciousness, um, you know, human reflexive consciousness, one of the, the main distinguishing features of the, the human being is what we call reflexive consciousness, which is the ability to be aware of yourself being aware. So you've got sensory experience, sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, mind, and you can be aware of yourself being aware of it. But you can also be aware of yourself being aware of yourself being aware of it. And you can also be aware of yourself being aware of yourself being aware of yourself being aware of it. So you, you can take an infinite series of steps back and reflection with, with the, um, the uh, reflexive consciousness. That, and again, that reflexive consciousness is part of the mechanism or function, if you like, of, 
of uh, you know the human setup, and this can lead to to alienate what we call alienated awareness, and uh, and the capacity exists in human beings for acts of great wickedness and cruelty. So, when we look at it from the Buddha's position, um, we look at it from the uh, position of Pratija Samotpada. It's dependent arising. And a lot's been said about the Buddhist doctrine of Pratija Samotpada. Most of what has been said, as far as I can see, complicates the issue enormously. Um, it just basically means dependent arising. And uh, again, the Buddha is using a conceptual model to try and explain to you the nature of your experience. So if you look at your experience, and it's not that difficult, uh, the first thing you see is that it's conditioned. Uh, like if you don't eat food, you die. If you don't drink water, you die. But if there's no uh, sun and no planet, you can't eat food. Um, and then, you know, it, there's all these tiny little microbes in your gut that digest your food. And if you don't, they don't work properly, you don't survive either. And uh, if your taste buds don't function properly, you have trouble eating. Uh, and so on and so forth. So th everything's conditioned. Uh, one I like to do when I'm, when I'm doing classes, when we're doing you know, basic Buddhism stuff, you say, well, you know, it's the old story, you know, how many people does it take to uh, make a cup of coffee? It's not a joke. It's like, you know, like how many Bostonians does it take to change a light bulb? Two. One to mix the martinis and one to change the bulb. No, sorry, one to mix the martinis, one to call the electrician. That's right. Um, but... Um, you know, if you, if you consider if you consider the number of people it takes to make a, co a cup of coffee from the time you go from the um, the coffee uh, farm in Ethiopia, you know, to the to the you know, and uh, you know, there's a bank and there's families and there's a farmer and there's trees and people harvesting it, and then you know, there's trucks and they've got rubber wheels and engines and fuel and it goes to the wharf and to ships and they work off satellites and global positioning systems and computers and. Um, you know, ships are huge operations. You know, somebody's welded them all up. They've got massive engines, and it gets to you know Stockholm and comes to the port, and it's got to be unloaded by cranes and the whole electrical national grid, and and then <laughs> the coffee goes to get made into packets, and the graphic designers have designed the packets and the, this and that, and then you finally get it here, you know, and we switch on a kettle and the grid comes in and you take the milk out of the fridge, which involves the whole farming industry, and you pour it, and then you light your honey, so that's the, all the bee industry, and you've got a metal spoon and a ceramic cup, and, and then finally you've got an arm that sort of puts it <laughs> to your mouth. And you can drink this coffee, you know, and it gives you a nice little hit, gee, bit of speed, and goes through your gut, and Sanafoth gets transformed, and the rest of it. And so that's conditioned existence. And there's just an infinite series of conditions, you know. Um, and that's how it is. It's not, it's not a theology, you know, it's not speculative theology. It's how it is. You can observe it. And you don't have to be Albert Einstein to observe it, you know. You can just sit, sit in your lounge and see it functioning. You know, you know, like one of your apartments in Stockholm, there's stuff going on all over the place. There's cars going back and forth and trains and, and food in your fridge and this and that and kids running around. and It's all just kicking off all the time. It's, and so that's, that's conditioned reality. 
Um, and the conditions are impermanent. And uh, I'm not going to say too much about this, but philosophically, they're either all permanent or they're all impermanent. You can't have one impermanent condition by itself. If there's one impermanent condition, they're all impermanent. But you can go away and think about that later on. Uh, but, so they can, it's conditioned and it's impermanent. So given that it's impermanent, it flows along. If, one, if, if things are constantly arising and ceasing, which they do, if they're impermanent, they arise and they cease. Otherwise they wouldn't be impermanent. They'd either be fully arised or fully ceased, in which case they would then be permanent. However, given that they are impermanent, they're arising and ceasing all the time. And this is what happens. You can see it going on all the time. Um, you know, arising and ceasing, the, the change of the seasons, um, you know, the cycle of the day, going to bed, getting up, going to work, is constant movement all the time. So, the Buddha points to this. This is his, his doctrine of uh, Pratyajas Samapada, dependent origination. You know, it's conditioned, it's impermanent. And then he points out, again being very astute, that the conditions are causally related. Which is to say, if you plant an acorn, you do not get a cactus. You get an oak tree. If two cats mate, you get a cat. You don't get a dog. Children, uh, humans do not give birth to zebras. Yeah, and it's consistently causally related. Um, so certain causes have certain effects. Uh, so it's, 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 not, it's not some other thing apart from us. It's our very life, who we are, as we find ourselves today in Stockholm. It's just flowing along. It's arising and ceasing. It's impermanent, and everything's causally related. And this is the basis for... Um, if for ethics, your actions have consequences. If you don't believe it, try it and see. Go out in the street and kick a policeman in the shin, see what happens. Or go out in the street and help an old lady across the road. Or donate, give some money to a beggar, see what, see what the difference is. Start, if you don't believe it, but the Buddha's just trying to help us out by saving us a lot of trouble, just pointing towards, uh, well, these things will conduce to skillful results and these to unskillful. And generally, for the Buddha, as I said before, skillful means those actions which are associated with metta or love and kindness that conduce to joy, tranquility, concentration, insight into the way things are, so on and so forth. So it's very important to understand the point I'm going to make now. The Buddha is not so much trying to impart a doctrine uh, or theology to us as trying to direct our attention. The Buddha invites us to see in, in the Buddhist system, you're not going to be coerced. If you're not interested in the Buddha's teaching, it's not a problem. It really isn't. Um, yeah, I mean, we're just, we're just offering something that will have a dramatic and positive effect on your life if you take it seriously. That's at least what we say. Um, if you don't believe us, well, try it and see. And if it doesn't work, well, you're, you're duty-bound to find something that does work if you have any uh, you know, in, in, uh, intellectual and moral integrity you would be duty-bound to leave us and go somewhere else. Um, so uh, the Buddha tries to direct our attention. Quite often people think the Buddha talking, the Buddha's talking about doctrine. Um, but actually, the Buddha, it's, the Buddha invites you to come and see. It's, it's much more that. The Buddha's asking you to look here or look there. He's trying to point to a direction. 
So if the Buddha's trying to invite you or point to a direction and you're, you're taking it literally as doctrine, as doctrine and trying to understand it philosophically, you can end up in knots. Here's the old saying, you know, you can take a horse to water but you can't make it drink. The Buddha can't get you enlightened. The Buddha can show you areas to look in that will replicate his experience if you are prepared to make the effort. Um, but more than that, you can't really do anything for you. So we can observe and experience that certain actions leads, lead to, devel to the development of faith, joy, tranquility, concentration, and insight into seeing the way things are. And insight is just... Um, seeing the way things are, immediate and visible all round. And this, this opens the door to freedom, compassion, confidence, clarity of mind, um, things like that. So all the Buddha points to, really, is the way things are, how we find our conditions in life as we live it, and, and the way to a more open, uh, creative dimension or a more open, creative possibility for being. If, if you observe your mind, and again, this isn't rocket science, if you just sit and meditate every day for three or four years, you'll notice that most of your time you're in the grip of a fairly vicious, cyclic, um, rigid mental process that just keeps repeating itself and restating itself in various forms. And, and that's what we call our life. And in, the me and in between all that, we're sort of running around doing things. You know, oh, I'll do this and do that. And it's, easy, it's easier, in a way, in this type of society to be comfortable, because we're so well off. I mean, you know, and we vacuum up 80% of the world's resources between us and have this fine lifestyle. So I mean, we should be happy. I mean, but, but at the same time, if you observe your mental states, most of the time... Most of your time is spent in what we call the hindrances. It's, you know, most of the time we spend in, uh, in sense desire, ill will, um, uh, restlessness and worry, sloth and torpor, doubt and indecision. Those are the basic mental states that we inhabit. And it's just a, a self-repeating, uh, self-perpetuating, cyclic process. Uh, and it seems to just, it's, it's a highly successful mental process. It's so successful, in fact, that it's almost impossible to stop. But according to the Buddha, not quite. Uh, yeah, there is, there, there is an opening we can go through. And the Buddha, generally speaking, if he's going to say it in a word, you say it's here, impermanence. That's where it is. Uh, so, you know, he points to, you know, uh, conditionality, causality, impermanence, arising, ceasing. So that, uh, you know, if, if, if you're in accordance with reality, your sense is that you're like, you flow along. You flow along. It's a much, much more pleasant feeling than feeling you know, rigid and inert and stuck. So this is the Dharma of the Buddha, which we teach in uh, Sri Ratna. And uh, it begins with ethical practice. You know, it begins with you know, the, the basic ability to discern between skillful and unskillful. And a lot of it's trial and error, you know. It's not black and white. There's a lot of areas ethically that are a bit grey. And, uh, you know, we can only really get very good at ethical behaviour by tuning our sensibility. 
Yes, it's almost like a faculty that we develop and sensitize and make stronger. And then all of us, you know, um, there's an artist in, uh, in, uh, in Norwich where I come from called Arloka. You might have seen some of his paintings. He paints a lot of... Um, that's an Arloka, I think. Um, he looks like a, a cat that's been dragged backwards for a mangle. He's got sort of leather pants and long beard and long hair and his belly and his fingers with mitts and big rings. Um, and he, he's got this uncanny ability sometimes to boil things down to their essence. But what he says about us as human beings is, yeah, we're all messes in progress. <laughs> we are all messes in progress. Does that make sense? Yeah. Translate into what's it? Yeah, and so, yeah, when when we're looking at the, you know, we need to be realistic ethically. You know, we are unenlightened human beings, and and um, we're. Uh, there's another category of Buddhist doctrine called sanskaras, which I'm not going to go into now, but the sanskara is a tendency or disposition that's, that's built up from habitual acts of behavior. And so that you just have a tendency or disposition. It's like following a track through the forest. You know, you just, you always, I mean, you just follow the track, basically. And we've all got these ancient old tracks that we've been following since beginningless time. And we've all got them. And they vary, you know, might, you know, you might have a disposition towards drinking or you might have a disposition towards clinging to neurotic behaviour or clinging to sort of negative mental states or, or we might be a lot more positive than that, you know, we, um, we might cling to art and beauty and things like that. But we've, we've all got sanskaras and they mess us up and they're really hard to get rid of, you know, and you keep doing it again and again. Um, and, and sometimes they erupt into your life too and they just sort of take over for a while. And you're running around, so trying to get things. So, the, yeah, the ethical life is—it's not a straightforward business. And then there's also sort of grey areas as well. It's, it's not black and white. Um, so it's as if we have to try and, as sensitively as we can, within the context of meta, you know, stare our way through, and uh, you know, just you know, gradually keep improving. But um, ethical behaviour is the indispensable basis of the spiritual community. Uh, you know, if that goes, everything goes, really. And it's the essential basis of the Buddha's teaching. Yeah, you know, the Buddha's quite clear, you know. The path is divided into sila, samadhi, pragna, ethics, meditation, wisdom. And, you know I, know, I know from my own experience as a young man, I was a good meditator. So I was a bit careless about ethics, you know. I thought, well, I don't have to worry about that too much. I mean... The thing with the ethical life when I was younger was it wasn't something I really wanted to live. It was something I saw I had to live. I mean, I would much rather would have been down you know, at the jazz club at 3 a.m. drinking a whiskey, smoking a cigar and sort of listening to the music and watching all the interesting people and everything like that. It was much more um, attractive to me than actually being pure in inverted commas. But eventually, and, and, and if you're a good meditator as well, you can get away with it for a while. You, know, you can get you can get into um, you know positive mental states. You can enter into the dhyanas and have all sorts of experiences. But eventually, you sort of run out of steam, and you've got you sort of leaving this trail of wreckage behind you, and you actually have to turn and deal with it. 
and then you know, you, and you have to sort of um, sort the foundation of your ethical behaviour out, and eventually, you even become to enjoy being pure. It actually becomes preferable to be ethical, and uh, calm, and you you find that your mind starts to become lighter, and your life seems to have much more flow and order. Um, an integration to it, and that in itself is pleasurable. Then you begin to start to experience uh, mental events like joy and tranquility and lightness of being, um, and you're not sort of having to cover your back, you know, <laughs> uh, things like that. So, yeah, there's this point being that the you know the ethical life is not something set in concrete. It's organic. It's the same as us. Okay? Like if you if you look at us living our spiritual lives, we don't move in straight lines. You know, we don't move. You know, you don't sort of move from point A to point B towards enlightenment. You know, we're like hermit crabs. You know, we sort of crawl forward for a while and then we go into our shell. Then we go sideways a bit. Then we go round and round and round. And then we go off that way and that way. And then we go back a bit and then forward. Yeah, that's, that's how we work. That's what human beings are like. That's what we're like. Um, and, you know, our ethical life will be like that as well. But, but you know, the Buddha says it is important. You know, we do need to pay attention to it. And it is the foundation of um, you know, the personal spiritual life and also the spiritual community. So ethical conduct is the foundation of meditation. Once you get your ethical life sorted out, it starts to become relatively easy to move into concentrated meditative states. And then from the basis of our spiritual experience, which will arise from ethical behaviour and meditation, um, uh, uh, Mitrata communication with um, you know, our fellows in the spiritual life and the rest of it, wisdom will arise. Wisdom arises from spiritual experience. It doesn't arise in the abstract. Uh, personally, I'm very uh, wary about this idea of uh, dry insight or insight that you can somehow download off the net without having to talk to someone. Um, it doesn't quite ring true, to my mind at least. So... Meditative concentration is the essential basis of wisdom, and wisdom is seeing things as they are visible all around. Um, and and when you, it's, it's not an end in itself. When you begin to see things as they are, visible all around, um, this this releases or puts you in touch with, or you see through to, if you like, an inexhaustible well um, from which flows all peace, um, an unutterable joy, and a compassion. You begin to act more compassionately. You move away from self-centered activity. And it's just there. That is the way things are. That's, you know, that's the great truth of the Buddha. And to miss it, a miss is as good as a mile. It's the difference between heaven and hell. Um, but this is why the Buddha is trying to direct our attention. He's trying to get us to see something. So this is the invitation of the Buddha. Um, and it begins in the, in the company of people committed to developing skillful action. Uh, begins in the company of a society based in meta and mindfulness. This is where we begin. So peace is real change. Um, Non-violence is radical and simplicity of lifestyle is revolutionary. And uh, so this is the teaching of the Buddha. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.